And so during these three weeks, we've been taking a look at three of the most important disciplines. We talked in week one about God's Word, week two about prayer, and then this week we're going to be talking about worship. And our spiritual goal is to become more like Jesus, to know Him more. And so we've been looking at the things that will bring about that result, the result of knowing Jesus more. And we've been making the point every week that at the root of the word disciple is the word discipline. And so you cannot be an effective disciple without having discipline in your spiritual walk and spiritual life with God. The meaning is right in the word. And so today we're going to jump in and talk about worship. This is the first fill-in on your outline. Is simply we all worship something. We all worship something. And our lives reveal what we worship. We all worship something. We worship our career. We worship a relationship. We worship a sport. We worship money. We worship our kids. Worship our spouse. Some of you are thinking that would actually be really nice. But no, it's not right. Sometimes we worship our spouse. And if you look at your life, you just have to do what we were just talking about. Look at the things that you think about before you go to sleep at night. Look at the things that consume your thoughts. Look at where you put your time, your talent, and your treasure. And everybody is worshiping something, even if it's themselves. Even if it's themselves. If you say, you know what, I don't, I don't really do anything. I don't have any motivation. I, I don't do anything. Well, the truth is you're simply worshiping yourself, if that's the case. You're doing whatever you feel like and making yourself the highest priority in your life. There's an answer for every single one of us. And, and Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And here's an absolute truth. Here's an absolute truth. Only God is worthy of our worship. Let me hear you say amen to that. Amen. Only God is worthy of our worship. And whenever anything other than God is worshiped in our lives, it's called idolatry. It's called idolatry. That's what idolatry is. Something else taking the place that belongs only to God. That becomes your idol. That's what idolatry is. And at the root of all sin is idolatry. It's idolatry. We've allowed something to overtake God's in the position of prominence in our lives. Something else has become our idol, maybe even our own sinful desires. But what did Jesus say was the greatest command? The greatest command. Known in Judaism as the Shema, it's simply love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And we're all loving and worshiping something with our heart soul, mind, and strength. There's nobody in this room who is not a worshiper because we're all worshiping something right now. And if we're all worshiping something, track with me here. If we're all worshiping something and we all say, yeah, it's true, we're all worshiping something, doesn't it stand to simple reason and logic that we will experience the most joy when we worship the most worthy object possible? Doesn't it stand to reason we will experience the most peace, the most hope, the most fulfillment when we worship the most worthy object possible? It's very simple. If we decide that this carpet is God, that will not fulfill us as much as worshiping a person. If we worship a person, they won't possibly fulfill us as much as worshiping God. So there is a correlation between the worthiness of the object you're worshiping and its ability to satisfy you and bring you joy. And for us, we believe that we will experience the greatest joy in life when we worship the most worthy object possible, which is God 
It's only God. To succeed in worshiping God is, is quite simply the greatest success we could ever have. To fail in worship is the greatest failure we could ever experience because it means we are wasting or have wasted our lives on the lesser things. We have worshipped a light bulb instead of the sun. We have worshipped the pebble instead of the mountain. We've worshipped the lesser things instead of God. And so to fail in worship is the greatest failure that we could ever have. It really is. In modern English, to worship is, is simply to ascribe worth to something. It's to make something valuable by the way that you treat it. That's what it means in modern English. So by the way I treat you, I make you important is the idea. So to worship something is to make it important by the way that you treat it. You make it an idol. You elevate it by the way you treat it. And I think we're all, we're all pretty good with that. We say, yeah, yeah, that, that's good. I can do that. But, but we run into some problems when we begin to look at the Hebrew definition of worship. Because the Hebrew definition of worship is a little more problematic. It means to fall or prostrate yourself before someone on the ground, touching your forehead to the earth. That's a little more problematic because it's a, it's a literal physical act of humility and subservience. The Hebrew idea of worship is absolute humility and subservience before a person or an object. That's what worship is in their culture. And that's so foreign to us because in our Western culture, we don't really do that for anybody. We don't do that for anybody. But this was a part of their culture, and this was a physical demonstration that someone would do if they wanted to give honor to the person that they were standing before. To worship is to put your heart, your mind, and yes, even your body, everything you own in that position before the Lord, face down, bowing in reverence, in every sense of the word. You know, when Jesus was beginning his ministry on earth, prior to him, John the Baptist had the most happening ministry on the earth. It was the edgy ministry that all the young guys would go out and see him by the Jordan baptizing people, preaching this radical message of repentance. And John had his own disciples. And Jesus showed up on the scene, and his, his disciples, John's disciples, begin to notice, um, crowds are getting a bit thinner, John. Um, maybe we should like, give away an iPad or something. But... Um, People aren't showing up for you like they used to. They're going after this Jesus guy. What what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And John's response is a verse most of us have heard. John's response is simply, he must increase and I must decrease. He must increase and I must decrease. I love that quote because it's epic. It's almost scripted. But what I love is John's emphasis. He says, he must increase. I must decrease. That's his emphasis. He's saying, this is how things must be. Not because I want them to, or even just because they're right. This is just how things must be. They have to be this way. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. He must increase. I must decrease. And that's the heart attitude of a worshiper that we see in John the Baptist. And when we worship, we're saying of the one that we are worshiping, this one is worth more. This one is worth 
more, while at the same time implying, and this is where we get into trouble, at the same time implying, I am worth less. I am worth less. Men, in our culture, we can even be okay with elevating God, but we're not okay necessarily with lowering ourselves. How can I elevate God without compromising my personal comfort? How can I elevate God without compromising my perception of my dignity? How can I elevate God without any discomfort? But the truth is that it goes hand in hand. It's saying this one is worth more and at the same time implying I am worth less. I am worth less. Don't miss this. This is huge. The, the worshiper is more concerned about honoring the object of their worship than they are about their own preferences or even their own dignity. If you are a worshiper, you are more concerned with honoring the object of your worship than you are about yourself. If you're more concerned about yourself, you are not worshiping. You might be doing something, but that's not what you're doing. You're not worshiping. Nobody puts their forehead to the floor because they're like, oh, you know what? I just need to chill a bit. What's a comfortable position I could sit in? Oh, yeah, forehead on the floor. Oh, yeah, that's comfy. I'm just going to hang here for a little while. I've never once had that thought in my entire life, in my entire life. But, you know, that's the reason behind the entire physical act of doing that before somebody is it is uncomfortable. And by the very act, you're saying you being honored is more important than the blood rushing to my head right now. You being honored is more important. Let me show you so that when you look at me, you understand what's going on in my heart. You understand what's going on in my mind by what's going on in my body. The worshiper understands it's not even about their own comfort. There are, there are a lot of books and, and a lot of conversations happening in Christianity. I think this started happening probably about a decade ago. You've probably heard this before, that this whole idea that anything can be worship. Anything can be worship. Taking out the trash can be worship. And all the housewives said, amen, hallelujah, praise God. It's a good word, it's a good word. Anything can be worship. So this conversation started happening that anything could be worship. As long as you did it for God, it is, it is worship, it is worship. And when we do things out of the overflow of our heart, they can certainly be described as worshipful, worshipful. But they're not technically worship. During our Ephesians series that we just wrapped up, we talked about the fact that when you bring God into anything you do, you redeem what you do. And you give it eternal significance and you give it eternal value. But even that is not the same thing as worship. And, and this matters because we really need to understand what we're talking about when we use the word worship. When we use the word worship. Worship is the act of ascribing worth directly to God. It's about ascribing worth directly to God. Worshipful actions ascribe worth to God indirectly. So in other words, God, I'm telling you that I love you and I worship you by preparing this meal with excellence for my family, by working hard at my job today so that other people will see your character in me. So that's an indirect act of worship. It's worshipful, but worship is a direct act of adoration towards God. It's a direct act of ascribing worth to God. There, there doesn't have to be music involved, but it does have to be direct Everything about you focused on God while you're doing it. 
It does have to be direct and not simply worshipful. Worship is the mind, it's the emotions, it's the will, it's the physical being engaged in whole person adoration of God. Are you tracking with me on the difference between what we're talking about when we say direct and indirect worship? We're saying every part of you directly focused on worshiping God. He's the center of your attention. He's the center of your attention the whole time that you're doing it. God's word says it like this. It says, give the Lord glory. Give him glory and strength. Give to the Lord the glory due to his name. Man, if we could get this right in the church, if we could get this right in the church. Have you ever been to a a church service or some type of gathering? You walk in, people are worshiping. You don't know anything about the place, but you know God's in the building. God is in the building. Not, not in a theological sense, like where two or more are gathered in my name, there I am, but in like a, I feel this tangibly. God is in the building. Like it doesn't matter if you believe in God or not. He's in the building and you got to give it up. He's in the building. If you've ever had that experience before, that is the result of direct worship and adoration of God. And if we could get that right in the church, and I really mean this, you could bring your unsaved colleague, your friend into church. They could have the most fine-tuned arguments against Christianity. But they would have an experience like Paul on the road to Damascus where suddenly God shows up and he's in your face. You don't have anything left to say because you're confronted with the fact that he's real. You have all these reasons why he's not, but suddenly he is. And you can't deny it. That's what God designed to happen in church. And he even says in the scriptures, if if you'd get that right, people would walk in among you who don't even know who God is, and they'd say, I don't know who he is, but he's here. God's here. You just can't deny it. God is in the building. I really believe that needs to be a goal of the church. And, and, And I find it heartbreaking that in the modern church, we betray the glory of God in worship by simply singing songs. And it always breaks my heart when you walk into a church and you have these words on the screen describing an incredible God and you have people singing, He's amazing. He moves mountains, saves the dead. You know, like there's just no connect between the people who are supposed to be worshiping and the songs they sing. It's like there's, and so when an unbeliever walks in, we're like, can't you see that this is amazing? And they're like, apparently you don't think so. Apparently you don't think so. So I really have a passionate heart, and I believe God does. He says, man, sing songs about my greatness. But when you sing, would you look like you actually believe what you're singing? That would be nice. That would be really nice. So you're not like walking past your spouse saying, hey, love you. (laughs) You know, it's like, what? I said it. What what, what more do you want? You know, we've got to make sure that the heart, the mind, the emotions, the physical actions all point to what we're actually singing and all point to what we're actually saying. You know that we're not going to study God's word forever. Heaven's not going to be the most epic Bible study you've ever been to. Nobody will ever preach again in heaven, ever. What are you going to do? You're going you're to describe God? He's there. 
Like, just look at him. He's right there, you know? He's, he's there. We'll know him fully, says Scripture. But we will worship forever. We will worship forever. We'll spend eternity doing that. And this is what I really believe. The ultimate goal of preaching is to produce deeper and more passionate worshipers. That's the ultimate goal of teaching. I really, really believe we we do not worship to warm you up for the message. We preach so that you can be warmed up to worship God rightly, which we're going to do afterwards. We preach so that we can discover how God wants to be worshipped according to his preferences. We preach so that we can know who he is and adore him more specifically and praise him more accurately. That's why we preach, to know God so we can be better worshipers. And that's why I really, really can't wait to get started studying on the life of Jesus next week. Every single week, I promise you this, you're going to find new reasons to praise Jesus. You're going to find new reasons to love him. There's nobody like him. There's nobody like him. Do you know that our Heavenly Father is passionate about his only begotten Son, Jesus, receiving our worship? He's passionate about it. And I'll tell you why. It's because Jesus obeyed the Father all the way to death on a cross. All the way to death on a cross. He honored the Father every step of the way. And the Father's response is, that's my boy. And you guys better recognize what he's done. So if you want to be a friend of the Father, you love Jesus. You go through Jesus. That's what Scripture says. But the Father is passionate about us recognizing what Jesus has done for us. I think that's why there's Scriptures that say things like, God opposes the proud. Some of that is the Father saying, you you, you don't want to acknowledge what my Son has done for you? Do you think I'm going to let that slide? He died for you. And you want to flippantly discard his sacrifice? I'm going to oppose you, is what God says. But, but here's, what I know, here's what I know about the heart of a father as well. Everything that we do for our kids as dads, we, we really don't expect them to fully understand what we do for them, right, dads? I mean, we don't expect them to fully understand how hard we work. We don't expect them to really understand everything that goes into what we provide for them. We don't expect them to understand everything or, or force that upon them. We, we don't even need their thanks. We, we do it anyway. But man, doesn't it do something in the heart of a father when your kid comes up and says thanks? It does something in me when, when, when Friday we're, we're out hiking as a family and my eight-year-old daughter says, Dad, thanks for taking time to do this. And she just recognizes that, man, I'm busy but I took time because I wanted to be with them. And when they recognize that, oh, man, that hits right here. You know what else it does? makes me want to find more time and do it again and do it again and do it again. And I really believe that that is in the heart of God the Father as well, where he says, you guys are never going to fully understand until we get to heaven what Jesus has really done for you. But if you'd recognize it now, that sure would bless me. And it sure would make me want to bless you even more. Because every father loves a grateful kid. They love all their kids. But man, a grateful child, whether you want to do it or not, you'll do more for that kid. I promise. It's just the truth. It's the heart of a father. It's the heart of a father. And so maybe for, for some of us today, we're, 
we're just frustrated because it feels like God's blessing isn't on our life. God's blessing isn't on our life. And I want to suggest to you that there is a connection between being a thankful worshiper and God's blessing on your life. And so I'd encourage you, if you feel that way, to look at your life and ask the question, is my life characterized by worship, by elevating Jesus, by adoring Jesus? Is my life characterized by that? Or am I simply saying, yeah, I'm I'm not a worshiper. It's not my thing. It's not my thing. So let me address the the hottest topic on worship, which is the issue of uh, worship styles. Uh, I was a worship pastor for for 10 years. We actually have a term for this in the worship-leading subculture. We call it the worship wars, is what we call it. Because churches have split over this. Churches still split over this. Somewhere this week in the world, there is a church splitting over the issue of worship style. Somewhere in the world today, there are people accusing a person with an electric guitar of being in contract with Satan. That's happening somewhere right now. Somewhere there's a fight over an organ that is splitting a church. That's going on right now. So let me share on you this way. When my son or daughter comes to me and they give me a drawing, and it's a drawing of me and them holding hands, and the drawing says, I love you, Daddy. Let me tell you what I don't do. I don't go, your crayon stroke technique is bush leak. <laughs> really crap, you know. I, 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 I don't say, your, your, your color choices are illogical. The, the sun is not blue. I mean, like, all you had to do was look out the window. I mean, really? 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 I don't do that even one time. And the reason for that is that here's what I know. I know that I was foremost on their mind while they were doing that drawing. I know they did it for me, to bless me, to let me know that they love me. And I know that they did their best for me. Unless it's like a two-year-old and they just scribble and they're like, here you go, you're welcome. But you know, when it's like my eight-year-old, they're like, it's your face. You're like, all right. So, But when it's like your eight-year-old and they put care into it, it's your six-year-old, your five-year-old, your four-year-old, your three-year-old, man, you do not begin dissecting it and pointing out all the things that you don't like about it, all the problems with it, why it's not technically correct to the letter. You don't do that because you're a parent, and you love your kids, and you love that your kids love you. Here's what's interesting about the Word of God, is how unspecific it is on the issue of worship style. It's not specific. And the reason is that God did not come to us and say, hey, if you guys are going to do drawings for me, here's what you need to know. I like pastels. Don't bring me markers. I want pastels. I want a summer color palette. Don't give me any weird legal-sized paper. I want letter-sized paper. That's how you do a drawing for me. Got it? He didn't, he didn't do that. And he didn't do it with worship style. He didn't say, this is the style I love. This is the style I hate. Woe be gone from me, the electric guitar, for it is an abomination unto me. So the verse doesn't exist anywhere. He doesn't, doesn't say, where two or more of you and an organ are gathered, there, there I will be, there I will be. He doesn't do that because he wants to give his kids room to express their affection and their worship in different styles, using their different gifts. And he's much more concerned with our heart. And not just do we love him, but he's concerned with, is our heart focused on what he wants, how he wants to be worshipped, 
directly, specifically, with repentance where it needs to happen, taking place before we approach him, with reverence and honor. He's much more concerned with those things than he is with what kind of instruments you're using. He's much more concerned about that. God says, give me your best, give me your full attention, give me your emotions, give me your mind, give me your body all in worship. So this is the shocking truth. There is room for different expressions of worship in the body of Christ. There's room. It's okay. It really is okay. And I think we're a little misguided when we say, well, wouldn't it be great if we were all just one big church in each city? Because what we're really saying is, is, wouldn't it be great if we just lost all the diversity in the body of Christ? Wouldn't it be great if we were all one flavor? That would be awesome. But I think God loves the fact that there's different expressions of worship and it brings more glory to him. I think God really, really likes that. But let me say this. Let me say this. Whatever church you are in, worship there. Worship there. Because the worship is for God. It's not for you. So when we say, you know, I'm just going to chill outside while worship goes on. What we're really saying is, I can only assume that this is for me. So if it's not to my standards, I shall not partake. If you're visiting another church, I don't care. You go visit an Anglican church where they're singing hymns, you better sing those hymns because that's where you are and that's what they're doing. It's not for you. It's for God. It's for God. And especially for parents. Don't raise up your kids to think it's for them either. Model it for them. Don't tell them, eh, we're going to skip it. I really hate this guy's voice. You can be honest. You can say like, hey, I know his voice is kind of rough. I, I hear, Daddy hears that too. But this is for Jesus, so let's go worship together. Wherever you are, worship. Otherwise, you're really saying it's about you. It's not about God. We don't want to do that. As an interesting side note, just as an interesting side note, a study of hymnology, yes, that's a real word. Use it in a conversation. <laughs> reveals something really interesting. It reveals that most of the great hymn writers, like the Wesleys, actually viewed hymn writing as worship and instruction. And this will really help you understand what's going on in hymns. This will also help you understand why the verse in an average hymn is like this long, right? Because their goal was to literally teach theology and doctrine through songs. That's what their goal was. That's why there's so much craft going into the word. And that's good, and that's great. But I would say that's sort of like bonus content because God didn't actually ask us to do that. He asked us to adore him. So if you can adore him and teach something, hey, that's fantastic. But anything less than that, anything less than that, that's just worship, is still what God wants. It's still what God wants. And it would kind of be like me doing this. It'd be like me singing a love song, you know, saying like, Charlene, you were born on April 4th. That is your birthday, Charlene. Our anniversary is August 10th. Now I will remember that. So, so that, that's sort of actually what the goal of hymns was, was to help teach doctrine and theology and worship at the same time. At the same time. But noti- notice this. Notice this. Because this is a big complaint about modern worship, right? Oh, it's too simple. It's too simple. Too simple. I like my verses to have a, 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 a healthy 270-word minimum. That's what I really want. 
Isaiah 6, 3, this is what they're singing in heaven. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And? No, that's, that's like a song. That's like a whole song in heaven. Revelation 4, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Revelation 5, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. When we see these pictures of worship happening in heaven, not one time does the Father or Jesus go, like, that's all you've got? Seriously? I got to get a new band. He doesn't do that even one time. Not even one time. He's not like, I got to make some new songwriters. These, these guys are like exhausted after three lines. But that's not what's going on in heaven because it's absolute adoration. And I think what happens sometimes in the beauty of simplicity in worship is that the angels and the beings in heaven are so consumed with the glory of God They want something simple that they can just sing over and over. They don't even want to open their eyes to read a screen. They just want to worship. And that's the real goal of worship is the adoration of God. When we worship here and we worship after this, my real heart and goal is that everybody forgets about the band. You close your eyes, you forget about the screen, and you just adore God. My goal isn't even to get you to participate 100% in the song. It's to get you to participate in the adoration of God. That's what we want. That's, that's the real goal. That's the real heart of worship. So what, is this, what does this look like in our lives? Well, the most frequently given command in all of Scripture is to sing to the Lord. The most frequently given command in Scripture is to sing to the Lord. Love God shows up about five times. Don't kill about five times. Variations of sing to the Lord, praise the Lord, over 2,000 times in Scripture. 2,000 times. And it does not appear as asterisk, look at the bottom of the page, if that's your thing. It doesn't show up like that in Scripture. It shows up as a command. It shows up as a command. You can do any kind of study you want. You can look at the original language. You can look at the verbiage. And you'll find that the verbiage it gives when it tells us to sing to the Lord is the same emphasis as when it tells us do not kill, as when it says love the Lord. And just as none of us would ever say, you, you know what? I, I'm not really a sharer. That's not my gift. So I'm not going to share. It would be forced if I did. So I'm really not going to do it. We would all say, that's crazy. You don't get a pass on that. When you look into Scripture, worship is not a spiritual gift. It's not a spiritual gift. There's no gift of worship. We're all called to worship God. It is a command emphatically in Scripture. So we all have different bents. We all lean different ways, just as we talked about in prayer. A lot of us are not natural prayers, but that doesn't diminish the importance of prayer of the discipline of prayer. And some of us might say, you know, I'm not naturally inclined to do this, but that doesn't diminish the importance of it or change the fact that God wired us to be full of his spirit through those means. It doesn't change that fact at all. And when we begin to worship with singing, especially in the midst of a hard situation, amazing things begin to happen. 
In Isaiah 61.3, we're, we're told that the cure for a spirit of heaviness is putting on the garment of praise. This is what God gives his people in Isaiah 61. He says, you guys are weighed down. There's an emotional heaviness. You're beat down. You feel defeated. He doesn't say, for that, I'm giving you healing. He says, I'm giving you the garment of praise. He says, go praise me, and it'll be lifted. It'll be lifted. There is incredible power in praise in a bad situation because you're beginning to acknowledge who you are, God, is changed in no way by where I am right now. You are still God. You are still on the throne. Your glory does not go up and down along with my life circumstances. Your goodness does not go up and down. You stay the same. When we find Paul and Silas in prison, they are singing while their legs are in stocks. They're in prison. Singing. In prison. Singing. What does God do? Literally opens the doors. Literally sets the prisoners free. Literally. Because they were singing. He didn't do that when they said, you know, let's have a real in-depth theological discussion. Didn't do it. It's when they began to sing and praise God. God says, oh, oh, I gotta do something. I gotta do something here. These guys get it. These guys get it. There's incredible, incredible power in praise. So we need to sing. We need to sing. Get yourself some good worship music. Sing in your car. If you have a roommate and you use public transit, you just became one of those people that sing in the shower. But you've got to find a way to sing. I don't really care who you have to inflict it on. You've got to find a way to sing because there is power. There is power in doing it. God says so. He gave the command over 2,000 times. He wants to do something in your life through the power of praise, through singing. Find a way to worship daily. Find a way to worship daily. I I love to sing and I love music, but even if that's not your thing, just remember that worship is the direct ascribing of worth to God. If music's not even your thing, just go sit somewhere and don't do anything else and just consume your mind with God and gratitude toward God. And you can worship in absolute silence. You can bow down in absolute silence if you want to do that. But it's creating a time where your full attention is on God and it's direct worship, not indirect worship. Let me encourage you to participate in corporate worship, to participate in corporate worship. This is such an incredible opportunity every time we gather. I don't don't know if we fully understand the opportunity that we have every week. Whatever has been going on, you're going to have a block of time, 45 minutes, to just worship God. Nobody is going to come in and pull you away. You have that time. You have that chance every week. No matter how overwhelmed you've been, you have that opportunity to be with other believers. And remember that one of the primary reasons that Jesus created the church is so that we could be an encouragement to one another. And I think that's why he wants us to worship in a way that other people can see. Because if you're like, oh, brother, if you could see what's going on on the inside of me, I am dancing through a meadow singing hallelujah right now. Doesn't do anything for anybody if this is what they see. Nobody goes like, oh, man, I know what's going on in your head, and it lifts my spirit. Hallelujah. Nobody says that. So we need to sing. We need to clap. We need to lift our hands as a sign of blessing towards God. 
So that other people can see it. What? Yes, so that other people can see it and know that we are worshiping together. How many of you know that it moves your soul and your spirit when you hear other voices around you singing praise to God? Can we all agree that that's better than being surrounded by people standing in silence? It's just better, right? When you can actually tell that they're doing this and you're not like, am I like the only one doing this right now? I think I might be. I don't know. And here's what I've noticed. After leading worship for a long time, when I was a young worship leader, man, you have young worship leader syndrome and you just get mad when people don't participate. You know, you're just like glaring at people while while you're playing. Get that hand up. Do it. Do it. Do it. You know? come off stage, you know, and, and you're, like, you're like, I think that person's addicted to drugs or something like that. It's the only possible explanation. I mean, I'm singing really well, and there's still not. Let me tell you what I've learned about people. When we get together, we have no idea most of the time what's going on in the lives of people around us. We have no idea. And a lot of the time, that person who's just standing there looking lifeless, it took everything they had just to drag themselves to church because Satan's been beating on them that bad. And that is their massive act of worship is just getting here. They can't even sing. You ever been in that place where you're in worship and you're enjoying it, but you're just so beat up. You can't even sing because the second you start, you just start weeping. You ever been there? You ever been that pushed to the end of your rope? So here's what I know. We never know what's going on, but if you're in a place where you can worship, Man, worship. Worship to bless God, but worship to be a blessing to the people around you. Because you don't know where they are. You don't know what's going on. And God can use your worship to be an encouragement to them as well. It's a reminder to them that, hey, there's still a God who's good. There's still a God who loves you. There's still a God who's with you. He will get you through this. And where I am right now is a testimony that he will get you through this. He'll get you through it. There's tremendous power in corporate worship. And then finally, practice saying thank you to God. Practice saying thank you to God. It sounds so simple. I mean, every time you experience something good in your day, in your life, you look at your kids, you just have a moment where you're like, oh man, I love my kids. You look at your spouse and you say, oh, I love my wife. You take a bite of a sandwich that's just amazing. You're like, I love this sandwich. Anything good like that, man, just... Not all equal. Well, it depends on good the sam. No, no, not all equally. Not all equally. But in those moments where something is just good, make it a habit to just even for five seconds just say, God, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for who you are. Look at what you made. Look at what you gave me. Cultivating that heart of thanks is key to being a great worshiper. Nothing saddens me more than when God's people get together and pray. And it's like, let's just thank the Lord for what he's done. And it's like, I can't think of anything. It's like, really? Seriously? You can't think of anything he's done? How about saving you from hell? That's a good one. That's a good one, right? How about that you're breathing? How about that you live here? So much to thank him for. So much. When we do Bible time with our kids, we end by praying. And every kid has to say something that they're thankful for. They do not get to leave the table till they say something they're thankful for. If they take their time, then they got to say three things that they're thankful for because we mean business. <laughs> but 
We're going to be thankful. We've got to have a heart that cultivates gratitude towards God so that when we come here on a Sunday, our mind is full of things that we're thankful for. That's being in a state ready to worship. You're like, oh, I can't wait to worship. I've got all these things to say thank you for. So practice saying thank you. Become great at saying thank you to God. So let me say this in closing. To be a disciple of Jesus is to be a worshiper. It is to be a worshiper. Being a worshiper is not a spiritual gift. We're all called to do it. We're all called to be vocal, out loud, direct worshipers. And God wants this not only from us, but he wants this for us. He wants this for us. Let me explain what I mean. He's zealous about us worshiping only him because he loves us. And because he loves us, he knows that we would be wasting our lives if we were allowed to worship something other than him. For our own best interests, our father is zealous for his own glory because it is in our best interests. God wants the best for us. And to say it simply, he is the best thing for us. He is the best thing for us. So as we we worship both now and throughout the week, let's be worshipers who are obsessed with how he wants to be worshipped, how he wants to be worshipped. He must increase. We must decrease. He's worth more, and we are worth less. He must increase. He must. He must. God's word says he will. And he'll never stop. He will increase. He must increase. But he must increase now. We must decrease now.